workplace violence and the hard to practice skill of de-escalation. We're going to be talking with Joe Saunders, the host of the Managing Violence podcast. If you're in executive protection, you are in workplace violence prevention. You are in occupational violence. Workplace violence is broadly defined as when someone is abused, threatened, or assaulted in circumstances relating to their work. So by definition, executive protection agents are there as a treatment to workplace violence. Welcome to The Circuit Magazine, the number one source of information on protection matters, the industry-leading magazine for all security professionals who want to stay ahead of the game. Managing workplace violence as an executive security professional might seem really intuitive, but today's guest, Joe Saunders, the host of the Managing Violence podcast, as well as uh, Director of Managing Violence for SRM in Australia, is going to give us a real hard look at, well, I guess the benefits of having worked on the doors, been in the clubs, and then made that transition to the corporate world. And, 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 and I think it will teach us a lot about how managing violence and de-escalation is absolutely fundamental to what we do as protectors. And um, uh, Sean, it's a fascinating topic, but, but one which I feel we don't shine enough light on. Yeah, I think you're right, Colin. I think it is a great topic. And the doors seem to be the, or can be the, the birth ground for many people who get into our sector. Certainly the CP sector is more is seen as the more sexy of the two, as opposed to working on the doors. If I let a doorman want to go and do a CP course, get into the CP area. However, I think there's also a case where people who work in the CP sector should also look to you know, carry some days out working on the doors because what better place to tune your skills into an environment where people are you know, maybe intoxicated, maybe get into a bit of trouble. And it allows you to use your conflict management skills, de-escalate some situations. You get more opportunity to use them skills than what you maybe do in the CP environment. That is, a, that is a great point because, I mean, a lot of people will think, let's go do a behavioral analysis course. Let's go do some sort of conflict management course. Fine. But where are you going to test it out? You don't want to test it out when your principal is in trouble. So, so that's a great thought. And I'm, I, I really, really appreciate Joe Saunders and his help, uh, you know, especially in, in the industry. And it's, it's lovely to get a perspective from Australia, obviously, we're all a bit cut off at the moment, so it, it's great to, to sort of shine a light and have a look at what's happening uh, there. And um, when, I, when I actually read uh, Joe Saunders' book before, uh, Neon Jungle, uh, it, it is a lighthearted look at a bouncer's true tales of lessons, loves, and lacerations. And I, I really got the feeling that he's, he built the case for why um, what he and uh, Gav Snyder with SRM talked to term pre-zillions, getting your, yourself ready and prepared for any attack. I think it really builds the case for managing violence. But there is another aspect that we're going to talk about with him, which is workplace violence and the fact that you might not expect it to come from your colleague. You know, it, it, is it a misnomer then? that we're always prepared for this external threat, the fixated individual, as we had with Philip Grendler, 
Um, is it not more likely or increasingly likely that a, a violence threat comes from within? Yeah, I think there's definitely a case for that. Not just in the workplace with colleagues. Have you ever experienced it with your principal? Your job is protecting your principal. However, when you've got a principal that is a young son of a billionaire, they can have anything they want. They can drink whatever they want. There's no cutoff. And they have violent tendencies. You need to be able to de-escalate them, not only people surrounding them, but also your principal, because sometimes the threat does come within and you're actually protecting them from themselves as opposed to outside entities. No, that is, that is an excellent point. And, and in an end effect, people learn the more, you know, attractive hand-to-hand combat, uh, self-defense, Krav Maga skills, right? But de-escalation, that's, that's ultimately going to be the winner, isn't it? Oh, for sure. It's always about it's de-escalate, they get into a physical confrontation. As soon as you reach that physical confrontation, the situation's gone and you need, if you're not highly skilled in you know, some martial art or something that can take control of a situation and close it down pretty quickly where it's not, it doesn't look violent, you know, you're taking control using whatever restraint you need, then it can get out of control. So anything you can do to deescalate the situation and take it away from reaching violence is definitely more favorable. In, indeed, like, uh, like the police, or at least the American police like to say, verbal judo. And, and, and if you were a frontline uh, bouncer, door person, uh, then you're going to hone those skills, which, which I think is just something that we want to emphasize again and again on this, uh, on this session. Um, well, then let's get into it. Great friend of the industry. Um, you know, he's part of the newly formed ISRM Australia New Zealand chapter. He is uh, well integrated with the community, and it's great to have someone all the way from Australia to shine a light on this. And we're looking forward to Joe Saunders and the topic of managing workplace violence. And now, let's meet one of the contributors to The Circuit magazine. managing violence in the workplace and the wider topic of executive protection. How important are they to come together as one? This week, uh, I'm here with John Moss, and we're going to be talking with Joe Saunders, the National Practice Lead Occupational Violence and Aggression at Risk to Solution, and the host at Managing Violence podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on, Joe. Uh, how are you doing? Uh, my pleasure to be here. And uh, I'm doing great. I mean, I'm coming here from uh, Friday evening in, in uh, Melbourne, uh, Australia. So uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to other people that haven't yet and start, started a Friday. Absolutely. Yeah, you, you, you're in the future. So uh, you're bringing us these nuggets from the future. I love that. That's true. Um, many, many insights to draw from today. I, I like it. And because, of course, a lot of people can't get to Australia or we're not traveling as much. It's a pleasure to uh, welcome you in this, in this virtual format for the podcast. Um, workplace violence seems like quite a broad topic. So what is the challenge in your eyes that needs to be solved? It's an excellent question. Uh, workplace violence is a broad topic and it's, it's a complex problem. Uh, and the, the, I think that in itself is the challenge we need to face is that it's not a simplistic uh, problem. It's not something we can solve with duress buttons or body worn cameras or, or any, any other singular solution is something that requires an integrated set of solutions and it requires a really mature discussion 
uh, and a risk-based approach. Uh, and that's something that I don't think we, uh, in general, I mean, some, some organizations do it better than others, but in general, we're not doing it well yet. So the, the, uh, the process is really going a bit deeper than, uh, than just a one size fits all training solution or a technology solution. Okay. I, I like that. And then, and then you in particular, obviously you're the host of the managing violence podcast, but, but where does your enthusiasm or passion for this uh, topic actually come from? So, uh, <laughs> it can be a very long story, but I'll, I'll try to keep it brief. Uh, I've, I've always been a protector. Like from, from the time I was a child, I, I was a protector. I, I liked protecting. I was the biggest kid in the playground and I was friends with the nerdy kids and I liked protecting them from the bullies. It was always, I kind of just fell into that role. So I think it was a, a natural progression that I ended up in the security industry, even though it was by, by accident, uh, and then ended up in executive protection roles and so on. But, um, realistically to protect people at scale, the only way we can do that is to equip people to protect themselves. Uh, and that has led me to a desire to train and to equip and to share knowledge where I can. But, um, but yeah, I guess my, my passion really comes from that desire to protect others. And there's other personal reasons as well, uh, different, different, uh, places where violence has touched my life and, and those that I care about, but, uh, it all comes back to that desire to protect others. And I, I can't be there for everybody and we can't have enough bodyguards, enough protectors out there protecting every individual, we have to give people skills to be able to look after themselves. Well, let's develop that then, because what should, and it, and, and it seems crazy that there would be an uninitiated person out there on this topic, but what should the person that knows nothing about workplace violence, um, really start to be, become aware of? So, uh, th there are a lot of people that know nothing about workplace violence. <laughs> this, this, this is why I have a consulting practice in this, in this no. field, because there's a lot of people that might recognize they have a problem, but they have absolutely no idea how to solve it or, or where to begin solving it. Uh, and the, the reason we actually started a practice just focusing on occupational violence under our, under our security uh, company was that um, we saw a lot of well-meaning people trying to do the right thing with no idea what they were doing. So uh, in, a, in a lot of organizations, and I'm speaking from the Australian perspective, it's, it's obviously, it's a little bit more matured in the US. I'm not entirely sure what the situation is in the UK, uh, uh, in a, on, uh, broadly speaking. But um, we've, we found here that companies were starting to recognize that, that workplace violence or occupational violence and aggression, as it's usually referred to here, uh, was something that was growingly acknowledged as an issue, which is progress because 10, 15 years ago, it wasn't even on anyone's risk register. It wasn't even being acknowledged as a problem. Uh, it was just, if you work in customer service, you're going to be abused, right? You're going to deal with angry, violent people, sometimes tough, right? And, and it was, it was worse in fields like healthcare, um, yeah, social services, et cetera, where it was more pronounced. But, uh, so that was, uh, that was where things were. Now it's starting to become more prevalent, but, or at least more acknowledged as a risk. I don't think the risk is growing, although COVID has, uh, certainly seen some increases, but, um, we'll seeing people that were perhaps putting their hand up to do something about it. Maybe the security manager of an organization, the CSO, chief security officer, maybe the health and safety department, maybe HR, someone was being tasked to solve this problem, but not given any real resource to do it. And really kind of just running by flying by the seat of their pants, trying to figure out what the best thing to do was. Most of the literature on workplace violence is US based, uh, which is very focused on active shooter prevention, which is obviously topical for US, but not as relevant for Australia. So there wasn't a lot of principle-based education and yeah, you know, it was, it was kind of a frustration for me because I thought I can help these people, 
uh, it's not for, but not about me coming in and designing your program. It's about me coming in and holding your hand and showing you where to start. Uh, and then letting you design the program for your organization, knowing what you know about the organization, but just giving you some broad strokes knowledge about occupational violence. So uh, for me, I really break it down into nine core elements that people should know about, about workplace violence and what, what a good system looks like. Firstly, it, it begins with culture. You need to look at a workplace culture to start. Uh, that, that's, that's what's going to be, that overarches everything else. It, it envelops everything else. If you have a broken culture, it doesn't matter what initiatives you put in place, they're not going to work. So if you have a culture where people accept being abused, where they accept being assaulted, uh, where there's no support for people that are assaulted or abused, where there's no support for whistleblowers, where there's, uh, there's no ability to call out someone for being inappropriate, uh, there's no ability to put your foot down and say, I'm not going to deal with that. If that's not part of your culture, then it doesn't matter what your rest buttons we give you. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter what else we can give you if the culture is broken. So that's the first thing. Uh, secondly, systems, do you, do you have good policy procedure, governance, all that kind of stuff when it comes to your hiring policies, uh, your background checks, standards of behavior, and is anyone held to account if those policies aren't, fo- aren't followed? So I mean, everyone says, oh yes, we background check all our employees. I know for a fact that people don't even ring the references that people provide. Right? So if, if you're not going to ring the, the people that they have personally vetted to speak well of them, how are you doing a background check? So. Uh, those, those are things that we look for there. And then the accountability across the organization. This isn't just an operational problem. This is something that should have executive and board level buy-in uh, because at the end of the day, they're the risk owners. So they should have buy-in in this solution. And there should be a level of accountability there if they're not dealing with that risk appropriately. Uh, fourth, we look at mentally healthy workforces. So what are we doing to keep our people well? It's one thing to hire people that are mentally stable, but are we grinding them into the ground to the point where they, they are breaking? Because if they're breaking, that's when we start seeing insider threats. It's where we start seeing violence in the workplace internally. When people feel unappreciated, overworked, undervalued, that's when we might find someone who has perhaps a pre-existing psychological issue that hasn't been acknowledged, uh, who suddenly becomes an issue. So are we looking after mental health and well-being of our employees? Then we look at training. Uh, do we have a risk-based training policy okay, or a risk-based training procedure? So if I do have staff that are for example, traveling overseas as part of their work, do we do travel safety? Uh, if, we're, if we're going into hostile environments, do we do heat or hostile environment awareness training? Uh, if we have st- staff that are working with customers, customer facing, are we providing conflict management training, verbal de-escalation training? If we're dealing with uh, vulnerable members of the community, people that might be suffering mental illness, drug and alcohol dependency, et cetera, do we provide training in managing those specialist groups? If the answer is no to that, then that's a gap. And I'm not saying the training is the be all end all, but if we, if we are real about what our exposure is, and we're not training people to manage that, there's an element of negligence there. So, so that's important that we look at the training. Then we look at the other solutions and, and whether they're integrated. So for integrated solutions, I mean, it's not enough to just say, well, we have a problem with violence on, at this particular train station. Therefore, we're going to do a security systems upgrade. Okay. Now what? Uh, what, what does that data give us? What are the, what are the, what's that camera system give us? What is that? What do those duress buttons give us? We can put in a bunch of duress buttons. If we haven't upgraded our response team, then what's the point of the duress button? Uh, who's coming, who's coming to, to the rescue when they, when they hit that button? Like the, these are, these are the why integrated solutions are so important. And that has to be fed through into the training, into the culture. Um, you, you, you don't want to put in a bunch of physical security devices, a panic button, for example, and then have a culture that shames someone for pressing the button. Uh, so there, there are issues that we need to look at that are, not just about the technology. 
then we look at intelligence. Okay? So do we have the, do we know who's likely to hurt us and who's monitoring them? Uh, if we know we are the target of issue motivated groups, if we know that we are unpopular in certain spheres, then do we have any kind of proactive threat assessment going on to it, to monitor those groups and see whether we are likely to be targeted by them? So that, that, that threat assessment is ongoing. Then we look at our protection and security. So that's, this is part nine. So the protection and security, do we have a security team? Do we need a security team? Maybe we don't. Um, uh, is, does our security team, uh, does it just need to be in-house? Does it need to be something that we can completely control? Can we get a, a third-party guard force? Do we just need someone to log entry and exit to our warehouse? Or do we actually need someone who knows our systems and knows our people and can actually protect us? And being real about what your needs are there and, and recruiting or contracting appropriately is important. And then lastly, what's in our after-incident support? So that's investigations, monitoring, debriefing, making sure everyone's okay, offering proper support to, get, to enable people to emotionally and mentally recover from an incident. So it's, it's a nine-step pr uh, process, but it's a lot more than just one, a one-off solution. And they all interconnect and they all interrelate. Joe, I love that. What, what an intelligent process. Um, I think it's easy when you think about a subject like this to have a, um, a very direct approach based on experience and based on perhaps what you think the solution is and get into that as quickly as possible. And then that's job done. But I, I think if you'd said to me, what are the nine steps? I could have probably got maybe three or four of them, but, uh, yeah, that that's really well-rounded and I like that, you know, and I particularly want to look at this from the perspective of executive protection. But just listening to you speak then, I, I, I realized just how broad this topic is as well and, and how many different ways this affects us. I mean, just, just right off the bat, I'm thinking like, okay, so we've got the well-being of the team members. They're, they're under duress and stress and they react differently. It's a very competitive area, a lot of alpha personalities, and that can lead to issues where it creates violence in the workplace. There can be the violence that's directed to us when we're out on the ground working. But going back to uh, our roles as executive protection officers, what I'm really interested in is the de-escalation side, the, the verbal judo, as you call it. I think there's so much in here and what I'd love to get from this session today is some really good tips and takeaways. Um, you know, a, a lot of the listeners will come from a variety of backgrounds, martial arts, military, police, you know, arrest and restraint and, and, and bringing lots of different techniques and practice into this. But the reality is that if we find ourselves working on the job, and we're in a position where we're having to be grappling with somebody, then things have already gone seriously wrong. And, yeah. and they, of course, we have to be prepared for those situations because sometimes you, you, you cannot extract out of that and you need to be able to deal with it. But I want to focus on just a little bit, what can we do to prevent ourselves from getting there in the first place? Yeah, you, you raised some really good points, and uh, <laughs> you, you remind me of something I used to tell when I, when I was uh, when I was training you uh, close protection persons that if the job gets exciting, you definitely yeah. screwed it up. <laughs> the, the job the job should be as boring and monotonous as possible. That means you did well. Uh, if, if you end up in a car chase, then your planning sucks. Yeah, and that's like you, you've got somebody in a headlock and you want to show off that headlock. You think, look, I, I've done a great this job here. Right. That's not, right. Not realizing you ain't going to get no trophy for that. 
Yeah. Hey, look, I wrote a whole book about bouncer stories. So if you, you want to get into some action and get, get applauded for it, go work in nightclubs, but probably executive protection isn't where you want to be. Um, I think just before I come to the de-escalation question, I just want to want to emphasize, uh, if you're in executive protection, you are in workplace violence prevention. You are in occupational violence uh, because you know, workplace violence is broadly defined as when someone is abused, threatened, or assaulted in circumstances relating to their work. So by definition, executive protection agents are there as a treatment to workplace violence because the only reason our executives are being targeted is because of their work. So executive protection is, and residential security as well, is actually a treatment in that in that uh, nine-step process for uh, workplace violence. So it's it's not a, uh, a separate subject matter by any stretch. And in fact, a trusted executive protection officer or executive protection manager, even better, is in an ideal place to actually roll out broader workplace violence prevention uh, initiatives. Uh, if you think about who is likely to harm principal, if you're working for, uh, if you're working with an executive or protecting an executive. That broadly speaking, we're talking about issue motivated groups, fixated individuals, their spouse, or someone inside their company. Right? The, those are those are going to be four of our main main targets. So, what do we know about domestic violence? Okay, that's uh, are you are you trained to equip and see see the signs of perhaps there's a domestic issue, whether it's their spouse, their child, whatever that they may be having issues. Um, but also, I mean, then, then let's look at the internal issues, and this is what we're talking about with workplace violence. Like, are we creating situations where someone within the company might be motivated to, you know, make your principal no longer around anymore. Okay. And, and they will know their schedule and they'll know where they're vulnerable and they'll, it'll be when your guard is down because it's not going to be when you're attending a premiere or when you're traveling to a third world country, it's going to be while they're in their office. So with that in mind, it is important that, that as executive protection uh, officers, that we do have workplace violence at, at the forefront of our mind. And, and try to steer those good behaviors. Now, to answer your question regarding de-escalation, um, it's it's tricky from an EP point of view because uh, oftentimes when we think about EP, we're talking about short engagements, right? We're thinking about uh, engagements with the public uh, where you're not going to stick stand around and have a conversation. So that's where a lot of the existing uh, defensive tactics slash operational safety slash control, even control and restraint to me doesn't have a place in executive protection. Unless, unless you are the guys that get left behind to deal with the assailant while the other, while the rest of the team uh, exfiltrates the the, uh, the protectee, that really was the point of control and restraint. <laughs> you should you should be going with your protectee. Uh, if you work in a team, that's great. And if you work in the secret service, disregard what I'm saying. But for most of us, we're working one up, two up. We should be in the car. Uh, so that's that's a side point. But when it comes to de-escalation of potential conflicts, it, these are important skills for everybody to have. Uh, I I'm a fan of verbal judo. Um, but I do find that for broader applications, sometimes it relies too much on having a position of authority. Uh, it was written for police in the US, okay? and the, the US context is different. The Australian context is different to the UK context, different relationships with authority, different levels of respect and conduct that come along with that. Um, but also it, it was written for police who have a very, uh, <laughs> there's a very clear or else, right? I can try to be your friend, but at the end of the day, you're not winning. Okay, so it's, it's a completely different dynamic of conversation versus trying to get a customer service worker to talk someone down who doesn't have an or else on their belt. Okay, uh, and that's and that's a conversation that we could we could expand upon. From an executive protection point of view, where I see de-escalation as being important might be when we are dealing with that family member of the protectee, or when we are doing with a with a, uh, a, a an enraged uh, or you know, a frustrated employee, for example, and. 
what I usually give as guidelines on this, I, I'm, I hate scripted de-escalation. I think scripted de-escalation is the dumbest thing in the world because as soon as someone thinks you're reading a script or you don't care, you've, you've lost the ability to de-escalate them anyway. So don't script anything. Um, understand human principles of communication. Uh, I was talking to, I was talking earlier that, uh, I think before we started recording that, uh, the, there's really only two things that upset people. Uh, there's really only two things that trigger aggression. One is the person feels disrespected or two, the person feels disempowered. So if we can understand which of those two things is happening, that gives us a strategy to try and make that person feel more respected or make them feel more empowered or both. Um, they're, they're both fairly easy once you identify what's going on. Right, You can make someone feel respected by listening to them, giving them the time of day, taking their concerns seriously, validating them, letting them finish. These are very basic, good communication strategies, right? This, this is not reinventing the wheel. This is just showing basic respect to people. How do we show some, give someone back some power? Give them options. Uh, the, when people feel disempowered, when they're not presented with options, when they're not given a say, when they're not asked to contribute to something, that's when people feel disempowered. And both being disrespected and disempowered triggered a, triggers a very strong psychological urge in us that makes us feel threatened. Because uh, I guess going back to evolutionary psychology, if I was disrespected by my group, if I was excommunicated by my group, there was a good chance that come nightfall, I was dinner. <laughs> so I need, I need to be accepted by my group. If I feel disrespected, that actually makes me feel in danger. Uh, if I feel disempowered, now my safety is in the hands of other people that I don't even know or trust. So again, I feel threatened. So again, coming back to that question, is it how is this person feeling disrespected by what's going on? Or how is this person feeling disempowered by what's going on? Uh, and uh, yeah, we can draw that from everything from waiting in a doctor's office <laughs> for, for an extended period of time, not knowing why you're waiting. It feels disrespectful because like you're not respecting my time. You're not respecting what I've got going on in my life. Why can't you keep a schedule? Like These are questions people ask themselves. And they feel disempowered because what are they going to do? Kick down the door and demand the doctor to see them next? I mean, there's, there's no real way to control this situation. Um, and then we can expand that out to COVID, right? Why are people upset about COVID restrictions? Because they feel disrespected of being told your job is less important than his job. Your business is less important than his business. This one, this one is essential. This one's not. That's disrespectful to people. And feeling disempowered because no one was consulted. No one was asked to vote on what level of restriction we should take. People were just told this is how it is. And if you're in a democracy, you're in the, you're in the avenue of, of, uh, of, uh, recourse is to wait for the election and vote the other, vote them out, assuming the other party was better. So it's, it's one of those situations where we can apply loss of respect or loss of power to a lot of areas, but, uh, it's fairly universal. And after doing many, many hours of conflict management, verbal de-escalation training, those are the two principles that seem to be universal. Yeah. I love, I love that because when you think about it, it, it's like, there's so many different scenarios, so many different situations that you could face yourself in and everyone's different. Every, you know, you, you could have a fixated individual, you could have somebody who, you know, you've just trod on their toes, pushed them out the way without even realizing it, a whole, a whole range of things. And when you think of them like that, it seems so fragmented and you think, well, how, how do I start learning approaches from all these things? What you've just done now with those two different factors, you know, being disempowered or disrespected, that's, that's a solid building block to work on. I, I, can I can hold that information in my head and apply that to any situation. I really like that. Yeah. And, and I guess the application for that then, I mean, once you understand those principles and, this, and broadly how you go about fixing those situations, 
is you, you just brainstorm what are the conflicts that I deal with on a regular basis. It doesn't matter whether I'm working as a, a checkout operator at a grocery store or if I'm working as a, yeah, uh, so head of security for a head of state, right? It doesn't matter what my role is. There are going to be conflicts I deal with on a regular basis. Brainstorm those, tabletop those. How is this person feeling disrespected? How are they feeling disempowered? And what do I have in my in my arsenal, in my ability with the ramifications or the, the uh, I guess, the, the power of my role to be able to fix those issues? Joe, I really love that, and and I I I love how tangible that is, as as, as John said. Um, I can immediately see some parallels, though, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, active shooter training used to go in a certain way until an incident in a social media type company where there were uh, external security teams in another workplace where violence was happening. And, and of course, now that's kind of transformed the active shooter, um, manual as it were, I'd be interested in your thoughts. Let's say an executive protection team inside someone else's realm where violence is happening, where, you know, how, how can you navigate that? I think, I think that might be an interesting parallel to look at. Yeah, it's, it's a very, very, uh, it's very important. Uh, but it can also be complicated when we're talking about overlapping jurisdictions, overlapping priorities, contrasting priorities. I mean, obviously as an executive protection, our priority is the protectee and nothing else is as important as that. And uh, it, it is so essential and, and such so commonly overlooked that we need to operate and train and drill and exercise with all the different parties that are going to be present during an incident. So uh, it's, it can be difficult, especially if you've got, if you're working within a building that might have a contracted guard force, that might be transient, that might have different personnel on a, on a regular basis, but you need to have a common understanding of how the, how a situation is going to play out. If you, even, even something as simple as a fire drill, right? Something as simple as a, as a building evacuation. If I've got uh, fire wardens from each different tenant in that building doing one thing, I've got a guard force doing another thing and I've got an executive protection team trying to do their own thing and no one's bothered to talk to each other. I guarantee that's going to be a mess. So it, it is important that, uh, and, and here's, here's the kicker, right? For, from an executive protection point of view, oftentimes we have a habit of beating our own chest and feeling like we are the most important person at the table. What's that going to do? It's going to make people feel disrespected and disempowered. Uh, and they're going to feel no motivation whatsoever to assist you with your priority because they're trying to save a hundred lives. You're trying to save one. So, uh, when it comes to that kind of thing, it's important that we, we, uh, we put the big boy pants on and we, we listen to what other people's priorities are and see how they can assist us and how we can assist them. Uh, and again, that's, it's de-escalation, it's conflict management. Uh, it's something we should all be doing, but just because you've got the most training or you think you're the most important person in the room doesn't mean other people agree. So, so it is important that we have those conversations openly, honestly, and, and try to find, you know, we're all looking for the same thing. Hey, we're all looking for the same outcome. We want everyone to be safe, but uh, how do I involve them in a way that makes them feel acknowledged, respected, and, and empowered to, to assist? That's a, that's a great parallel. And, and, you know, it just made me think of another parallel. I mean, I love these parallels because, you know, I can, I, I'm not, I'm not a security expert as, as, uh, as you know, yourself and John, I, 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 I'm a generalist, right? So, so if I draw these threads, it's only because I'm saying, what if, or now what? Um, Equally, I'm thinking your background working in nightclubs um, and the different backgrounds of people in executive protection, we often hear from SF uh, people, uh, former, mm -hmm. we often hear from former police 
but uh, there is a group of people working in EP who have come from the nightclub industry. And, you know, inside your, your latest book, Neon Jungle, you describe a, a lot of managing violence in, 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 in that field. And I guess I just wonder, are you better placed than other people, perhaps? Or what do you have from that background to teach these other uh, disciplines about managing violence? You know, because, because there is that subsector of EP who have come from the same industry as you. Yeah, I, honestly, I, I don't know that any one former background is superior to another unless you've had specific EP training as part of that background. Right. If you were general duties police or you were you know, a truck driver in the army or you were a, a nightclub bouncer, you're going to have some skills that will, that will cross over, but there's going to be a hell of a learning curve as well. Uh, and, and for me, certainly in executive protection, I mean, what I did was fairly low level compared to, compared to what others have done. Uh, but it was enough for me to get my toes wet and to, and to kind of understand uh, what was going on and, and, and how my skills could apply. But realistically, I think the best background for EP is, is logistics. <laughs> if, you, if, you can, if you can make a complex operation arrive on time, if you could do maybe event management, right? maybe event management might be the way to go. Like, it, you know what, even better, I, I did a, uh, a work security for a, uh, a military band concert and watching the way those guys packed up and packed a truck and got out of there within like 15 minutes of finishing time, I was like, you guys would make an ex amazing executive protection officers because <laughs> uh, the, the ability to coordinate complex movements is, is far more important than your ability to fight or your ability to drive even. Uh, it's, uh, I, I don't know that any one area has its advantages. I think there's personality types that might be better suited than others. Uh, the one advantage I think you get from the nightclub world or uh, you know, the, the, I guess the, the private security world is that you, you get used to solving problems without having a lot of resources. So, uh, I, I think, um, using, pol using policing as an example, uh, yeah, it, you, you know, that if this gets out of hand, one, you've got tools on your belt and two, you've got a radio and, and an infinite supply of, of backup is going to come eventually. So the, and I, I'm being facetious when I say an infinite supply of backup, but you, you certainly got a lot more backup than the three guys that you're working with. One, one you can't pronounce his name and the other two guys reading peanuts, right? So, I mean, the, the, you, you learn to solve problems quickly or, or prevent the problem because you know, tonight is not a good night. I don't have my regular team. I have no backup. I need to make my de-escalation on point tonight because I don't have any ability to manage these situations if they get out of hand. Maybe that's an advantage. Uh, but I think every, every field, has, has some skills that it contributes, but mostly it's the person and their ability to learn and, and their commitment to learn a very specific niche area of security. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, you're absolutely right. No matter what background you come from, you can bring something to the table. And I think it's also just as important to realize that you might bring things to the table that might not be a strength in this new role and to really go on a exploration of discovery to find out what those things are and then work to improve them. And, and I'm thinking, I've seen this many times throughout my time in the industry, people who come with a police or military background have come from positions where they've had authority to varying degrees. And especially if you're in the police, a lot of authority over the general public. And so when you bring that into executive protection, it can be very hard to have that mindset shift to allow you to be able to interact and deal with the public without straying into the area of disrespect and, and disempowerment. And so Joe, you've gave us two really 
great practical ways and applications for looking at how or why somebody might be upset that might lead to violence. And for me, I'm overlaying that on, on, on my own time in the industry. I found that the one that I've probably encountered the most or encroached upon is the disrespect. I spent a lot of time working with principal who owned a sports team. And so it was obviously very recognizable to the fans of that sports team. And certain fans might believe that they then have access to this person because they're the owner of their team. And I always felt like I was treading a very fine line, especially as a solo operator, because you might have one opportunity and it might be, okay, de-escalation, show these people respect, but then don't lose authority, don't lose control of the situation. And I just want to take a moment to look at the, the disrespect factor. So as soon as we're, we're aware that we're in a situation where somebody's becoming perhaps agitated because they're feeling disrespected. What can we do quickly to change the balance of that? Yeah, it's, it's an excellent question. And, uh, and to some degree it's a piece of swing, a piece of string question where it, it depends so much on the variables, but, um, to your point, uh, when people have an unrealistic expectation, this is kind of, this is where it can be kind of difficult because there's only so much you can do to re-educate their expectations in the moment without them feeling disrespected because they're not being given the level of service or the level of whatever they were expecting, right? That's just, that's just life. Um, I think it is important, firstly, that we at least pay attention to them and we show that we're listening to them. And, and there's a difference between it, listening to someone and showing that you're listening to someone. So he might be, you know, just something simple like making eye contact, really taking time to, to talk to them. If you can, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that you've got someone else looking after your principal while you're engaging with this person. Um, it, it might be taking notes of what they said. It might be offering to get them to get the, uh, you know, the office in touch with them to talk about their grievances. If they're, if they've been someone who's been a, a, a season ticket holder for the last 30 years and they're, they're a valued member of the community, then show them they're a valued member of the community and say, look, we, we really appreciate your support. You are, you are important to the club. Unfortunately, uh, we're not taking meet and greets at the moment. However, could I get, could I get your details so that someone can follow up with you to, to make sure you feel heard and you can, you can voice whatever concerns you have. Uh, and at least then we're showing them the respect that we're going to follow up and then actually do it. That's the important part, right? We actually have to do that thing afterwards, even if it is just passing the details and saying, could we get the intern to give a call and just tell them how wonderful they are, <laughs> right? That, that just might be all it takes, but that becomes a positive experience now for the fan, as opposed to something that, um, they're going to troll on social media about how the bodyguard was rude and abrupt to me. And, uh, and of course. We know that when uh, a season ticket holder has an issue with a contracted security professional, guess who gets the worst end of that stick, right? So it, it's important that we, we make sure that we represent the club well, we represent our employer's company well uh, in all our interactions. That said, I mean, if we're in a point where we think this could actually become a threat, it's not just an upset person, this, this has potential to, to become a threat, uh, yeah, then we just have to do what we do, right? We have, we have to move to the next one, whether it's an exfiltration or whether it's, you know, uh, handing that person over to the, the venue security or police or whatever. Um, there is a, another tool that I use called assertive courtesy. I've written about this in the past, but assertive courtesy is basically how we show respect while still maintaining our boundaries. So, so I completely understand where you're coming from. I understand this is important to you. You are very valued to us. However, I have to make sure that no one can get close to X, Y, Z, whoever the person yeah. is. Right. Uh, so I'm, I'm setting the line, but I'm also being respectful and courteous about it. 
Um, I think wherever we can draw that line, that's, that's an escalation. It, it is an, it's a slight escalation beyond just showing respect because we're having to now establish our boundaries. But um, yeah, it may be necessary. But I think if that, if that fails at that point, now we're just going to move on to general threat mitigation. Yeah. And it's clear to me that experience is the best trainer. No, nothing will have informed our opinions more than the experiences that we've had. What is the best form of training and where should we seek it to try to shortcut that process? You know, we're busy. We've got, the, there's so many different areas of our skill set that we need to evolve and develop. So we're always looking to, to shortcut and express it and, and, and gain that experience in the shortest amount of time possible. What would you suggest to anyone who's looking to improve their de-escalation skills? What would they do? Where would they go? Where would they seek this training and advice? Uh, I'm going to give you two really off the wall suggestions. Uh, there, there are a lot of verbal de-escalation courses out there. I can't personally vouch for whether any of them are better than others. Uh, that it's just a matter of, I guess, you looking and seeing whether the person gets it, whether they have a background that seems relatively uh, appropriate to what you're looking for. Um, and whether their approach is humanistic or whether it's based upon authority, uh, uh, having an authoritarian position, which is, is not going to fly in most circumstances if you're not in uniform. Uh, and, and especially if you're a uniform security guard, because no one respects you then. Uh, so uh, I think there's, uh, there's, there's pieces to look at there when it comes to formal de-escalation training. Uh, but two off-the-wall suggestions that are, I think are incredibly helpful if people can do it with a, with a spirit of humility. One, do a mediation course. Uh, understand how to control people's emotions, understand how to listen properly, understand how to synthesize information that someone is telling you while they're emotional, and then reflect it back to them in a way that they feel heard. If you can do that, your de-escalation skills will, will dramatically improve. So mediation courses are, are usually a couple of days long. Okay, you can go deep in it, you can do a whole degree in it, but uh, but you can you can find some short DS, uh, sorry mediation courses that can assist. The other one, if you're not comfortable with uh, on the fly communication. A lot of people in this industry, yeah, they're, they're, they're not podcast hosts. Right? They're, not, they're not comfortable having, having conversations in, in the public eye that might be tense. I, I also really suggest for those people do an improv car class. It has nothing to do with security, but your ability to get up and, and banter with someone and to riff with someone and to feed off what they give you and to lose your inhibitions a little bit about having a conversation, uh, that can be hugely important as well because for people that aren't people purple, aren't people people, that will really push them outside their comfort zone, but the, the improvement will be dramatic. Oh, I was not expecting that one. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't expecting that question, but I'm glad I had an answer. <laughs> and, and, and it's also opened up a whole new uh, in a spectrum of guests for us. Um, I'm going to definitely tap on a lot of famous actors and actresses, uh, you know, uh, doors. Um, maybe, maybe we'll do an improv session on, uh, on one of the events. I don't know. I, I love that as a suggestion, though. I, I really do. It's, it's so out of left field. Uh, you know, for conventional thinking and, and often what we can get trapped into in CPEP is going for training that is built mm -hmm. for executive protection and close protection. And, and while that training probably represents the core skills, it's these things, these add-ons, th this is how you will differentiate yourself. This is how you'll truly become better. There's a certain amount of things that we need to do to stay in date and qualified medical skills and so on driving. But, but this is really, you know, how you can go on and differentiate yourself and just become a real leader in an area. I like that a lot. Yeah. 
Yeah, and to, to add to that, I mean, uh, I think the the natural trap that we all fall into is that we start we we have a desire to impress people like ourselves, right? So I want to do the courses that I know are awesome, right? Because other people like me will then see how awesome I am because I did a course that they knew about. You know what? Your principal doesn't care. Your principal hasn't sit. It doesn't know nothing about that course. They don't stay up all night on YouTube looking at bodyguarding training. They don't care about that. They want to know how you can add value to their company. And if you want to get paid better, this is a message to everyone in the security industry that's whinging about not getting paid. If you want to get paid better, add value. That's, that's, that's business 101. Yeah. If your role is I fill a shirt and I tick a box and our insurance is lower, you are going to get paid for that. If you feel if you if you're able to come in and say I'm going to uh, have positive interactions with people that care about you, I'm going to I'm going to uh, mitigate your risk of workplace violence. I'm going to make you better liked with your secretary, <laughs> whatever it is, because I'm personable and I understand what this business does and I understand what the priorities and the expectations of this company are, and that's that's when you start getting to be a trusted advisor, uh, and and that and that's when you can actually start exerting some influence and changing. You're not trying to impress other people in the EP field. You're trying to impress a principal, and that and that sort of goes along with a lot of the things we've been talking about when we look at training and development. There are those things, as John you know just said, you know medical training things you have to keep up to date with licenses, things that absolutely need, but you don't need to put everything on your CV. You don't need to put the improv course on your CV. You just need to harness it as a power. You know, if, if you put a hundred different courses on your CV, you might not get hired because they'll be like, oh, they, they, they haven't made it specific to this role. Um, so, so I like how that ties into courses for you and courses that are nice, sparkly gold stars on your CV. Uh, where, and, 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 and obviously, sorry, sorry, sorry just, to, just to be clear, I mean, I'm not saying at the expense of your fundamental skills. Oh, no, in addition. I'm talking about in you, addition. You're, you're, at, you're at the point in your career where you have the fundamentals down. You're, you're obviously not a liability operationally, and we want to advance to the next level. Let's start thinking outside the box. And the other thing I'd probably suggest is go to an MBA. Like if, you're, if you really want to get, get further along, understand how business works. Uh, and, uh, and then you'll become much more valuable. Yeah, definitely. Given the hot stock tips and uh, options in the back seat with the principal, that that might get you some brownie points. <laughs> um, you know what? Just be more likable. Just be more. Just be a more likable person. You'll you'll stay employed longer. Wow, I think that's the first time anyone's give that advice on this podcast, and and the value of it is quite clear, isn't it? Well, you know, you're not you're not being hired by a board of advisors. You're usually being hired by a person who decides whether they want to be around you or not. Uh, if, if you're a, an EP agent, uh, assigned doing close personal protection, you're spending an awful lot of time with one individual who has ultimate say over your future. It's probably good yeah. if they like you. I totally couldn't agree more, well, but it totally overlooked as well. At the same time, like you say, so easy to get caught up in all the core skills and, you know, look how impressive I am on paper, but, but actually can you sit and, you know, just have a basic conversation with somebody who's comes from a totally different world and background, you know, and be able to relate to them and empathize with their pains and struggles. Yeah. And, and look, I mean, uh, I, I, to, to expand upon that, I mean, there, there are going to be times where we have to tell our principals things that they don't want to hear. There, there are going to be times where we're going to have to tell it, especially if you work in celebrity protection, for example. I mean, there, there are going to be times when you really have to be the, the handbrake to happiness, to use that phrase, right? Where uh, it's like, no, we, we can't do that safely. Okay? There, there might be times when you have to be that person. Um, 
and, and that's a natural part of the role. Right? It's important for us to understand how a certain client wants to be communicated to, what what sort of language we need to use, how we need to frame something, how we need to to address our security advice in a way that makes sense with their priorities. Uh, I was listening to one of your former episodes about ESRM, and the, the lady said something about uh, uh, if you if the the board doesn't understand you, that's not their problem; it's your problem. Right? That's that's exactly right. It's up to us to communicate the way that our principal wants to hear it. But on the other hand, um, the, the second thing is most successful people have people they respect, and if those people like you, they, they'll buy you some buy you some cred as well. So even if they're having a bit of a moment and they don't like you and they're upset about something you said, if the people that they respect. If their mentors are saying, no, he's good, keep him around, or she's good, keep her around, no, that's, that, that's good to have in your pocket as well. And if I may be so bold, people from Australia, as people from the Northeast, are generally liked. So you, you both have a big advantage, <laughs> I think. I don't know. Um, or at least you're <laughs> likable. Hey, on that, I know, of course, you, Joe, have an audience in Australia, New Zealand, right? So everybody you know, probably already knows you. But maybe a nice little touch would be if I asked... Can you give us a flavor of what EP life is like, maybe currently, maybe over the lockdown in Australia? Maybe maybe that's a nice sort of light to shine. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, look, I'm, I'm not directly involved any longer in the EP space here. I, obviously, I've got connections that are, and I've got a lot of friends that are. Uh, it's it's uh, you, you would understand, quite light at the moment. <laughs> there's, there's not a lot of international travel. Uh, previously, there was work in Australia, mostly with... Uh, with celebrities and so on that might be might be visiting the country uh and uh because it's a, a low risk environment and it's a it's a safer country maybe they stand down some of their normal team and they get some locals uh to to assist so those short-term gigs were for a long time the bread and butter of the the industry here in australia that more the the uh i guess celebrity bodyguarding industry um most of most big ep sorry most big uh companies have some level of protection for their executives but it's it's not the norm uh so it just depends. Uh, there's a range of work from contracting residential security for high net worth families um, in, in very small supply, but, uh, but then also uh, general sort of EP work as well. And for, you know, if you have a, you know, a, a multi-billionaire uh, CEO coming over to visit, then they're probably going to have some sort of assistant detail from made up of locals to support their, their existing uh, yeah, standard detail. So um, yeah, there, there are bits and pieces of work. Uh, it's very much uh, an insular network. It's not something you can kind of just uh, troll the job ads for to see it, to get a job. It's it's something that you have to be invited into, uh, because the work is is kind of minimal and very exclusive. Uh, it tends to it tends to go to a a very specific group of people. But um, but that said, I mean it's it's not something to be discouraged by. It's just being realistic about how hard it's going to be to get in. But once you get in, if you do a good job, you usually stick around. So. Uh, that said, I mean, once once the touring event industry starts coming back up, then uh, there'll, there'll be more work in that space. Good. I like it. Well, that is optimistic. And we do hope that everyone gets to you know, travel again to Australia. We hope that your borders open and our borders open and all of that. Um, uh, workplace violence, I, I, I didn't realize how far reaching it was. And disrespect and, uh, you know, disempowerment. It, what 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 a great insight! I think I think these are real takeaways that our audience can really sink their teeth into. And on a personal level, it's been nice to have uh, somebody in the field who has uh, your background because I feel that we need to you know broaden the diverse uh, backgrounds of you know people that we uh, ask uh, questions uh, you know of on this session. Well, Joe, 
thank you very much for being an excellent uh, guest on the Circuit Magazine podcast. From John and myself, it's been a pleasure having you. Oh, thank you very much. It's been, it's been a pleasure chatting and happy to do it again anytime. Thanks, Joe. It's awesome. It was an absolute pleasure speaking with Joe Saunders. I really appreciate the Managing Violence podcast, SRM and the ISRM uh, in Australia as a chapter. I think they're doing some amazing work. Um, and as, and as uh, Joe has said and written, judo skills do in fact pay the bills. Managing violence is something that will only get more important with, uh, you know, hostile terminations, any number of different factors at people's work when they are disgruntled for whatever reason. I'm not saying that they're going to have more or less reason to be disgruntled, but it's definitely something to uh, consider. Um, Sean, what, 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 what have you sort of taken away from uh, today? I think uh, you know, he's fantastic, hugely knowledgeable. And as you said, judo skills pay the bills. It's always better to de-escalate than to get in a physical confrontation. And I think Joe put that across really well. Absolutely. Yeah. You don't want to, uh, you don't want to get into an altercation. And, uh, I, in the intro, I really liked your suggestion that perhaps CP should spend some time on the doors just to keep sharp. Yeah, for sure. I mean, some of the best guys that I work with, you know, who've reached high levels in the CP sector, many times they go back and, you know, work at different events or a club where they have connections and offer their services and they do it purely to stay tuned and keep their conflict management skills going. And I think, you know, what better training ground to do that? Uh, indeed. And, 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 and that is perhaps where it's really at, because you can do all the training, uh, in the world and without actual practice, I think we all know what will happen. Um, in other news, uh, talking about practice, people have been practicing the art of posting some great things in the apps. Uh, so. Uh, you know, no, no particular order, but, but I thought some mentions of people who have posted some great suggestions or articles, or even on the Protectogram, some nice pictures, uh, with, you know, within the NABA app, for example, the Protector app, um, thanks to Maurice, uh, Kevin, Paul, Tim, uh, Trey Lou, Jermaine, Brian, and Monica. We had Monica on, of course, just the other week um, and on the uh, BBA Connect app, so many, so many names, but um, Natasha, uh, John Branchcom, Michelle, uh, but also Miranda Capulso, which is, which is really, really appreciated. Keep that coming. That community is vibrant. Yeah. Speaking of Miranda Capulso, I know she's putting out some fantastic content at the moment. And I've just actually signed up to one of her intro courses on behavior analysis, which also clicks back to the podcast we had from her previously and also it's in line with today's podcast that you've just been listening to so i'm looking forward to get started on the course and we'll provide some feedback on that through the app that'll be great yeah no really looking forward to hearing what that's like um oh uh another another previous uh podcast uh interviewee craig mckim uh, i thought i'd mention on the 14th of august he's doing an ep networking event in columbus ohio and um, obviously it's it's really handy if you're in uh, the Great Lakes or Ohio region or, or any, anything like that, but it's uh, very much to, uh, to, to be checked out. Uh, that's the 14th of August. And uh, I'm running a, a physical event in Phoenix on the 19th of August. That's the annual Convergence Forum. Some familiar faces, 
Joe Ortera is very kindly flying in. That's going to be an amazing presentation on connected uh, cars. Uh, Christian West is coming down. Uh, that will be a lovely uh, talk on the technical EPO of the future. Uh, much as he discussed on the podcast when he was uh, with us uh, a couple of months ago, um, and 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 many more familiar faces, uh, which which will be great. So that's the nineteenth of August. Um, what about the magazine? Because we've got the new episode coming up. What what are we looking for? Issue fifty nine coming soon. We're always up for good articles, good contributions from. Anyone out there, if you work in the sector, whatever the service may be, or even outside the sector, if you have knowledge and a skill set of things that don't necessarily sit in the CP sector, but could be an add-on skill of interest, it'd be great to hear from you and we'll get your article in the magazine. Love it. And hey, one, one example in point, Suzanne Dancer, who again, very, very big player on the NABA app at the moment. And. She's also doing a lot on the uh, Clubhouse app. You see her a lot there. But Suzanne is professionally a butler. But yet in the next ip issue, we are very much looking forward to her uh, article on etiquette. So very much value add. You might have something uh, on the periphery of EP. And as uh, Sean has just said, absolutely, we want to hear from you uh, because that's what makes the Circuit Magazine so great. Fantastic. Well, Thank you to Joe Saunders, uh, host of the Managing Violence podcast, for being such a great interviewee today. Wonderful to connect with our friends over in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, want to hear more from you, obviously. Um, workplace violence, sadly, is going to remain a massive issue. But as Joe says, you know, de-escalation and, and, and allowing the person to be heard to de-escalate the situation is never going to go out of fashion. So from Sean and myself, thank you very much. We look forward to seeing you on another great edition of the Circuit Magazine podcast. You have been listening to the Circuit Magazine podcast. Be sure to subscribe and be sure to not miss an episode.